You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. On average, we spend 60 years of life working. That's, of course, assuming that you're well and also you have, you're going to live fully. Now, if we are to take our vision of making the word of God or making all life all about Jesus, it becomes significant. That's more than two-thirds of our life. And if we fail to grapple with what happens in our work lifetime, you can see how much is missed out. What happens in your work life? What happens in your workplace? This is quite significant because we live in a, one of the biggest cities of the, of the world. And because of that, the issue of grappling <clears throat> with what happens in our work life and in our workplace becomes very necessary and important. We live in a society in which the workplace view of many of us or the, in our society is largely shaped by non-Christian worldview. Even in the remotest sense of it. <clears throat> Consider Israel Falau's controversy. That is before us all. A Christian who quoted a Bible in his private social media page and quotes what is true of the Bible, but he's being censured for that. I wouldn't want to believe that this is true. Because having come from a country where we were repressed for our faith in Jesus, and coming here, it just goes through my spine that no, this cannot be. But yet, here it is before us. A reasonable person would think that such a statement on a private social media has nothing to do with playing rugby. And as we know, he stands to lose his four million contract. I could end here and they say enough summon. Felau has preached to us. 
in his stand for Jesus and in his stand for the gospel. But under a worldview that is not Christian, work is about making money. It's about amassing wealth as much as you can, as much as I can. A very high temptation in our society. And as God is being denied a place in our society, we work has become a place of toil and a pain. rather than enjoyment or creativity as God intended it when he was creating us. This is the right Sorry. Okay. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed, life become mad by sin. So when we reject God, that's exactly what we welcome. My sermon today is to help us see the goodness of work in God's original plan of creation. That will contrast with the struggles and the pain and the lack of job, if you like, for some people. As we experience it, I'm aware that the application of this may not be so much applicable for those who are retired, but I think you can sympathize with the younger generation because I think a lot has changed within your lifetime. But sometimes you have to step in to help with the grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Something that you're not supposed to do, but anyway, thanks for that. God bless you. I'm also aware that the text I'm handling raises controversial questions about the origin of things. The origin of the universe, for example. <clears throat> what is the purpose and the origin of life? Why are we here? <clears throat> and what happens if we die? Please, if you're itching with those questions, feel free to send them. I'm not going to be answering them here. My focus is on work. Here we want to be so robust about the gospel and about the Bible. We are not afraid to confront controversial things. But we welcome your questions so that it informs us about your spiritual hunger. <clears throat> Looking at the text, then God said, <clears throat> let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Now, this is the key verse that we need to unpack here. God here is presented to us as a diligent, a careful worker. The word then points us backward to what he has already done from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And then it also points us forward to what God is about to do. God had been working to create a universe from nothing, from nothing, into a formless, empty, dark, and a watery material world. Yes, that's where Genesis begins. That world of chaotic order, disorder, or chaoticness, formlessness. We are not told much about it. But we are told where God begins to bring the order from non-order and to set the world in a very orderly fashion. Shown to us as day one, two, three, four, five, and six. Putting everything that we know of into place. Space scientists are helping us much more, particularly when we view other planets like Mars, the terrain and the hopelessness there that is there. So we can't simply say what on earth is here happened by coincidence. People who do say those statements, I think don't want to. It's willful ignorance, if I can put it like that. In the vastness of space, a well-calculated place, spaced rightly, doing all the things that make our life possible, we cannot simply say this was by coincidence. But Genesis tells us God took the time and the intent to make it to be what we see it today. He did all except one thing, the creation of man. God now gets to the point of making man. And the Bible tells us that that's a special creation. So special that there was a meeting. There had to be a discussion in heaven to agree on what this creature is going to be like. The theologians agree that the let us points us to the Trinitarian Christian doctrine. This doctrine is fundamental such that if you don't believe it, perhaps forget about being Christian. 
God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is in a relationship. And this relationality is foundational for our very existence and the understanding of Christianity. Mankind, unlike the other creatures, was to be made in God's own image and the likeness. God had to think, to discuss, and get his hands muddy. And getting this new creature like that and then breathing into his nostrils. Now, the phrase made in God's image has had people scratching their heads. And possibly, I think you do. If somebody, a non-Christian, asks you, what does being made in God's image really mean? How would you answer? It sounds simple, but it's a difficult one. But I want to make that clear to you this morning. In 127, it says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and the female. And in Genesis 2:7, he says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. It has not been an easy task, as I say, to explain what it means for us as human beings to be existing in God's image and the likeness. Some argue that it is our capacity and ability to rule over creation within that which man can reach. Of course, we are trying to reach into space, but sorry, it's a misery. We can try, but there is a limit to that. Within that sphere, we can rule things. But beyond it, we can't. Some argue that it's about our physical resemblance, that just like a mirror, that if God can, we could be like the exact reflection of him. Others argue that it's our moral, rational, and spiritual qualities, our knowledge of good and the bad. Others believe that it is being created as male and the female, and how the two sexes complement each other. Because both are in God's image. And for some, it's about self-consciousness, because God is also self-conscious. An attribute that links us to God, but it also makes us different from animals, goats, and the cows. 
something that humanists fail to grasp. The list could go on, but the New Testament tells us, according to Paul in Colossians, that he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. These verses tend to absorb all... Because those ideas I mentioned earlier are not necessarily wrong, but they don't bring out really the whole picture. But they become absorbed that the true image of God is found only in Jesus Christ. How did Adam and Eve miss it out? And how may we be missing it out? The only human that had the perfect relationship with God his father, which takes us to the Trinity again. The relationality that exists within the Godhead. Jesus is the only one said to have God's image. And this New Testament view implies that being in God's image is about our whole existence, not part of it. It's about the whole of me, the whole of you. Lived in love for God, lived in relationship with God. Not only with God, but in relationship even with his entire creation. Because there is a complex network that interconnects everything. That cannot be unpacked. If we try to do that, we are damaging ourselves. And also it has to be in relationship with one another. Because our relationships are not perfect, the image of God in us becomes blurry. It's not clear. But in Jesus Christ, we see it very clear. And that's why we need to look to Jesus in order to get the image of God. And that shows also that the image of God is not something that is stuck there and rigid. It is something that needs to be developed, needs to be worked on, so that the clear image of God comes out. Because God is in a relationship. We can't understand God if we are individualistic. We can't understand God if we think about ourselves alone. For us to be in, 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 in his image, it's about 
having a relationship with the God, having a relationship with us. Something that took him a great pain to send his son, Jesus, to come and establish that relationship. So it's not about our ability and the capacity to do things or certain things. It's not about our rationality, our power to reason. It's not our self-consciousness. Because if we do that, what do we say with the infant that doesn't have that capacity? What do we say with somebody who is mentally impaired? Do we say they don't have the image of God? Are they subhuman? And this is the difficulty we have in our society. When we talk about euthanasia, we talk about abortion and things like that. You can see how tragic, and yet we struggle to normalize it in every way possible. And we think God cannot be angry. And we think that he will not act. Although he is full of mercy, but also he is full of justice. Jesus himself restates this uh, relationality when he spoke to the disciples. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus tells his disciples, I am working. Look at me. I'm in the Father's image. I am working. <clears throat> Our existence in God's image is interwoven into that Trinitarian relationship between Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And his work of sanctification that he brings upon the world. Is that me? Oh, okay. Maybe I take out this so that that doesn't happen again. Christians must see their work there for and as a presence in the workplace. You're the image bearer. If you truly believe Jesus, you're the image bearer, the light bearer to the people in your workplace. A Christian must claim that place for God. They are to see that as a mission field and not simply an anti-Christian social, anti-Christian outpost, secular outpost out there. 
as we tend to hear from the media. As Christians, we must endeavor to correct one of the greatest errors in our time, which is the divide between the sacred and the secular. I'm a Christian here on Sunday, on Monday, I'm at work, it has got nothing to do with my Christianity. No, all the days belong to God. Everything belongs to God. In fact, everyone belongs to God. Simply because they have chosen to deny him. But God will never, ever deny anyone. No. So the text follows that God then blesses. And it says, be fruitful. In verse 22, we say that be fruitful. When he had finished creating the animals. And then when he created man and the woman, in verse 28, he says, be fruitful. But adds them, subdue the earth. This blessing means God gives vitality, creativity, and satisfaction, and to flourish so that creation can advance the work that God has done. We become part of that. And when we do it so well, we are reflecting the image of God in this world. So in your workplace, in my workplace, I have to reflect. Unfortunately for me, it's here. <laughs> but we do struggle. We come together as ministers sometimes to say, how are you going? Because a significant number of ministers actually stop working because of stress. So what I'm teaching you is not only to you, but to myself as well. Looking out after one another. We are meant to flourish, the Bible says. And science is part of God's work. It's not separate. Because without the rationality that human beings have, there is nothing much we could do. Tell me what the cows have done. Be fruitful. We know one way of being fruitful is to be productive when you are working. But another way of being fruitful is when you bear children. God blesses. God blesses the little children. Because they are his. They are not mine. They are not yours. They are his. He only gives us the responsibility to continue his work. 
Then we are told that God rested. This is a bit sounding funny that does, does it mean God really needs a sleep? Does he get tired? Does he need a holiday? This is immediately what comes into our minds. <clears throat> but let me say something about it. That when he had completed everything on the seventh day, which is actually the climax of his creation, it's not the human being. It's the Sabbath, the seventh day. That's when God rested. His resting means he stood back and took delight in what he has done. But theologically speaking, it opens a new chapter in, in, in time and the space that God has come to a Sabbath that he invites you and me to join in. When we look with him at the wonder of what he has done, when we go, when we look around and they see the blessings that God has given us, imagine everything that you love. I don't know what is it. Is it chocolate? Is it what? Is it rice? Is it apple? What is it that you like? Anything. Those things that you may not like, but they are very necessary, like medication. Everything that you ever think of. All these things were set there before even you and the I were created. Can't we wonder and take that in and turn that into worship? John Walton says that the whole cosmos is a temple of the Lord. Everywhere you go is a temple. Claim it for Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you, no, that's not. God is ever awake. He's not tired like human beings. He doesn't need refreshed, being refreshed in a sleep or a holiday trip somewhere. Where could God go for a holiday trip? He's ever awake, Psalm says, he is watching over you, not because he wants to catch you doing the wrong thing, but he wants you to be protected. That is a God who is constantly working. It was a moment of delight, a divine plan well executed, opening a time of an ongoing relationship with him and with his people, inviting you into that eternal Sabbath of rest, that when your work on earth is done, you are welcome. Welcome home, good and a faithful servant. Jews and Christians have traditionally used the seventh day as a day to worship God and to give him thanks, knowing that it is he who provides us everything. 
As humans, our physical bodies are designed to be taking rest. We are not gods. Sorry. We sometimes want to assume we are, particularly when we say God does not exist. Any others, what else is the supreme being? Human. Unfortunately, you need a sleep. I need a sleep. You need a weekend off. You need an annual leave. Unlike God, we need to refresh. And if we don't, we do a great harm. Because the way we are made is interwoven. And that's a source of pain that we begin doing harm to ourselves, harm to our relationships, harm to our children, harm to our partners, harm to our parents. We need to take time to spend time with our families. We need time to nurture our relationships, which is beautiful and proper in God's sight. Today, many Christians, and indeed many people, are under such unwarranted work pressures. In addition to other pressures, the pressure like if allows, you better fit in. Otherwise, you don't play rugby. That's a pressure. The other pressure is in your workplace, you want to be wanting to be doing very well. So that if there is a promotion, you take it up. The pressure to meet targets. You must produce this amount per day, or else we can't justify your, your paycheck. Pressure to relate to difficult people, even sometimes a difficult supervisor. Pressure to keep with demand. And sometimes it's just the environment at work. In his book, Under Pressure, How the Gospel Helps Us Handle These Pressures at Work, Andrew Laird, a lecturer at Ridley, suggested that part of the problem in the West is that we have too much wealth. And if it's there, why don't we enjoy it? Suggesting that part of the pressure is coming from the heart. It is from inside. A heart that doesn't appreciate, a heart that is never satisfied, motivated by greed, and that brings pressure. For some people, that means taking two, three jobs. For some, it means working seven days a week. So all the other things begin to fall apart. 
Why? Because we think we are the one who make life to be what it is, and God has got no place in our lives. That's where it's coming from. That's what the secular nature of our society is pushing us to do. But the consequences will be dire. I'm sorry if I sound like a, a bad prophet. But it's not healthy at all. Three out of every Australian, the statistics say, suffer work-related stress. Three out of five. And the problem is growing. It's not healthy at all. As Christians, as I conclude, we need to remember that our view of work is not to gather wealth for the sake of it. Doing it at all cost, we must resist this secular temptation. Our work is to honor God. Our work is to worship God. And they like if allow, if you need to let go of your four million contract, let it go. At the end of life, it doesn't count. Our work is to serve the common good. It is about good neighborhood. It's about relationship that are being that are shaped and they are shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now I know that this topic touches everyone. So if you're here and you want to be prayed for, please do. Because I don't know who is carrying the Lord now and how much. Do ask for prayers. But also it's my desire that in the near future we may be thinking along work lines of how to support one another. We are here to support one another, to walk the walk an extra mile. We just can't bury our heads in the sun and they say, oh, it's all okay, don't they sit here beautiful on Sunday and they smile at you, all is okay. No, 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 no. We can't just assume like that. But let us be very proactive in what we do. Also think, finally, about how you can be a missionary in your workplace. Think about how can you be equipped because the most enriched missional field is the workplace in Australia today. That's why I'm saying Falau did a fantastic job. The whole sporting world had the gospel once. And they are complaining about it. Let them complain. But he did his part. Now, what about you? May God bless you. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. And this is a topic that touches all of us in one way or another. And the way there has been pain, Lord, bring your healing. And the way possible, bring transformation. This we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.